Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. You may remember a few years ago, one of the big summer blockbusters was the movie San Andreas. It starred Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who, by the way, was born in Hayward. In the movie, the San Andreas Fault shifts, triggering a magnitude 9.6 earthquake in San Francisco. Disaster ensues, and for the rest of the movie we watch as the West Coast's greatest landmarks are destroyed one by one in an epic, computer-generated spectacle. We heard from a Bay Curious listener who saw the movie. My name is Stephen Horowitz, and I live in Oakland, California. One scene in particular stuck with Stephen. What's happening? We gotta go. Water being pulled out like that's a tsunami. We gotta get out of the bay now. There was a scene of the tsunami coming through the Golden Gate and hitting the Golden Gate Bridge. The wave is hundreds of feet high. When it slams into the Golden Gate Bridge, the water reaches the roadway, washing people and cars off the bridge. And that wave continues down into the bay, destroying San Francisco and the surrounding area. As Stephen left the theater, he found himself wondering... If a tsunami came in through the Golden Gate, what would be the damage to the communities that faced the bay? Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and today on Bay Curious, we're talking tsunamis. Not the ones of Hollywood hype, but the kind that might actually reach our shores. When a seismologist goes to see the San Andreas movie there, you kind of leave their belief in the, in the lobby and just watch the movie. And the, the tsunami there was pure fantasy, of course. This is Stephen Ward, a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at UC Santa Cruz. Real tsunamis are much smaller, just a uh, three or four feet, 10 feet, maybe 20 feet, maybe at worst. So that 220-foot wave in the movie? It's not going to happen here. 
Tsunamis are mostly generated where one tectonic plate slides underneath another, a process called subduction. This slow movement is happening all the time, but sometimes a plate will get stuck and pressure starts to build. When it finally lets go, there's an underwater earthquake that can move the seafloor. And there'd be a bulge of water on the sea surface, and the bulge of water can't stay there, it'd have to collapse. And that's what sends out the waves. Luckily, the fault lines around the Bay Area are not great tsunami makers. Most of them are on land, and even where they cross the ocean, they move in a different way. The San Andreas Fault itself mostly moves side to side, so it doesn't make tsunamis, really. You need lots of up and down motion. We have slip strike faults, where two tectonic plates slide past each other horizontally. That kind of motion doesn't displace very much water, so isn't likely to make a giant tsunami. But that doesn't mean we don't get any here. Here's Eric Geist, a geophysicist at the U.S. Geological Survey in Menlo Park. San Francisco has actually measured 71 tsunamis since 1854. That's when our tide gauge station was put in. That's about once every other year. We could see a tsunami after an underwater landslide offshore or a meteor hitting the Pacific. But most of the tsunamis we get come from far away subduction zones near Japan, Russia or Alaska. Scientists are still studying the tsunami threat along the Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest. We're certainly not going to bear the brunt of a tsunami generator from a magnitude 9 earthquake on the Cascadia subduction zone. Now, most of what we see from these distant subduction zones are micro-tsunamis, which you probably wouldn't even notice if you were at the beach. Scientists can detect tsunamis as small as one centimeter. But there have been a few sizable ones to hit our coast. In 2011, a wave generated by Japan's monstrous Tohoku earthquake hit all along the West Coast. The evacuations are continuing in San Mateo County as we await the first waves from the tsunami approaching from Japan. Docks around the harbor in Santa Cruz were significantly damaged. More than 30 boats broke free and several of them sunk. Further north, in Del Norte County, a man died when he was swept out to sea. Inside the San Francisco Bay, the tsunami was visible, but didn't do much damage. The biggest tsunami known to hit California was triggered in 1964 by a magnitude 9.2 earthquake in Alaska. It caused substantial damage in Crescent City, California, which is about 350 miles north of the San Francisco Bay. There, it killed 11 people and caused more than $55 million in damage when adjusted for inflation. By the time it reached us here in the Bay Area, the tsunami was just under four feet. Here's an account from the Los Angeles Times. At San Francisco's famed Fisherman's Wharf, the snug harbor where the little boats bring in the fish suddenly dropped four feet and as abruptly rose that much. Just north of the Golden Gate, the powerful force of the tidal wave snapped cables, holding the 66-year-old ferry boat now used as a store. The boat listed awkwardly. The tsunami left millions of dollars in damage inside the bay, mostly to pleasure boats and piers. Luckily, nobody was harmed. The chance of that occurring, we estimate, is about 2 to 3 percent every year. We have a chance of that size of uh, tsunami. It's certainly reasonable to assume that we can get bigger tsunamis in the Bay Area. Uh, maybe two to three times bigger than the 1964 event. And there we're talking about a fraction of a percent chance every year. So the headline here, we don't see many tsunamis in the Bay Area, and the ones we do get are typically small. But what about that very rare chance? Our question asker, Stephen, wants to know what would happen if a big tsunami did strike, 
say, a 16-foot one? First, we would see flooding in the low-lying areas along the coast. Water would inundate the first few blocks of homes along San Francisco's Ocean Beach and some parts of Half Moon Bay. Once a tsunami hits the coastline, it gets very complex, and it's going to generate these trapped waves that go up and down the coast. As the tsunami makes its way through the Golden Gate, waves get choppy as some of them bounce off land and splash back into the sea. Inside the bay, the tsunami would flood parts of Chrissy Field and the marina neighborhood in San Francisco. It would probably cause the most damage, though, to piers and marinas all around the bay. Anything that sits in the water is at highest risk. A lot of the damage, for example, in San Francisco Bay, is not generated by the height of the tsunami, but the currents, the very strong currents. A lot of boats or even ships will break their moorings, you know, and send adrift. The area of greatest concern is Alameda, which sits at the end of this deep water channel. Parts of the island are near sea level, and residents have limited ways to evacuate. The good news is we should have hours of advanced warning if a big tsunami is heading our way. In the deep ocean, they travel about the speed of an airplane, but get a lot slower once they hit shallow water near shore. So a tsunami generated in Alaska would take about four hours to reach us here. Plenty of time to get off the beach and to higher ground. I took all of this information back to our question asker, Stephen. I guess even when I hear the siren go off, I will already be at high enough ground so that I could rest assured that I'm not in any bodily danger. California's inundation maps can give you a sense of how far inland tsunami waters may rise. So if you live, work, or play near the coast, it's a good idea to check them out and make a plan. We have a link to those maps at baycurious.org. Also on our website is a video of a real-life tsunami entering the bay and heading toward Emeryville. It was generated by the 2011 Japanese earthquake, and it is fascinating to see what one of these things looks like in real life. Again, that video is at baycurious.org. Today's story was reported with help from Johanna Varner, a former fellow with KQED's science department. Thanks, Johanna. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at KQED. I'm Olivia Allen-Price. I'll see you next week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randal Fatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.